Welcome to the podcast of Rogue Valley Christian Church. We hope to be a place that connects you to Jesus, encourages you to grow in your faith, and challenges you to serve the world. Well, as we read earlier, I want to invite you, if you brought a Bible, to turn to the book of John, chapter 11. And as you're doing that, remember, this week... We are jumping today, we are jumping right back into our series on the story of Jesus. Remember for the last month we've been looking at, for all of January, we looked at the idea of not just what we do at church, but how we're supposed to do church, and we got some guiding principles out of the book of Acts chapter 2. I highly recommend go back throughout the year and look at those teachings and listen to those words again because it's helpful for us all the time. But I'm excited about today because we get to jump back into the story of Jesus. And as we do, even as we read, you'll notice we read from John chapter 11. Just so you know, it took uh, John covers in John chapters 1 through 10, 1 through 11. It's it's John's covering like a two year period in the ministry of Jesus. And then the whole second half of the book, John 11 through 21, the whole second half of the book is covering about two weeks. Everything slows down. And the reason it slows down is because of what's happening here in John chapter 11. We've recognized all throughout our study in the story of Jesus that there has been confusion There has been misunderstanding, there has been frustration, and even opposition to the reality of the presence of Jesus in the world. We look back and we're like, what, what, but it's Jesus, right? They would have looked at it and said, it's it's Jesus. Like he can't, right? So there's all kinds of confusion and misunderstanding and even opposition to who he was because... As those two years, those three years go by, he gets to the point to where he's making it clear about who he is. And in the previous few chapters in the book of John, he does so by making seven different I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am living water. And if you go back and look at that, you've got, you have to recognize that right before the raising of Lazarus from the dead, Jesus made it clear that he claimed to be God in the flesh. I am the Old Testament name for Yahweh. Remember, God introduced himself to Moses by saying, I am who I am, right? And the Jews would have picked up on it. So we find Jesus in John chapter 11, some 90 miles east of Jerusalem on the east side of the Jordan River. I encourage you, go to the back of your Bible, look up a map. You might not want to do it now because we're going to move fast, but look it up later and you'll see kind of where Jesus was. He's 90 miles away. The reason why he's 90 miles away is because things were a little hot in Jerusalem. He had no longer finished making those I am statements that the religious leaders in Jerusalem decided that they must do away with him. They have to kill him. They've got to get rid of him violently and strategically. He has to go. And so Jesus retreats, not because he's afraid of them, but because he was on his father's time frame. And it's here that we get the backdrop and the context for the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's important for us to understand a couple of things. Number one, 
The majority of us have come today with a presuppositional position that we believe in the miraculous. Are you with me? What I mean is we come today already recognizing and made up our minds that we believe that God Almighty can do mighty works. That he can be powerful, that he can do the miraculous. So we believe in that, right? So we're not necessarily going to take time to argue about sleeping and waking and living and dying. We believe with all of our hearts, Lazarus, Lazarus was sick and he died. And Jesus rose him from the dead. He brought him back to life. We're not here to argue that. Like if you have questions about how that works, you can see me later. We can set up an appointment. The appointment will be short because I'll say this. I don't know. <laughs> Could you walk me through the reality of Jesus raising the dead? He did it. Nice meeting with you. Have a great day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you think that I could explain that to you, you overestimate my intelligence. Nobody said amen. I don't know. <laughs> Everybody's like, tell us something we don't know. But the raising of Lazarus, it's important for us to cover it. Because in many people's opinions, it is the crescendo sign in all the Gospels. Specifically in the book of John, there are seven different signs that Jesus does in chapters 1 through 11. And they're all pointing to who he is. And this sign in John chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, is a crescendo sign. It is meant to have an exclamation after exclamation point after exclamation point after exclamation point. Do you guys have people that email you or text you with like obsessive exclamation points? Good to see you. It was great hanging out. Do you guys, do you get that? And do you guys are like, do you guys inter interpret that like, oh, they really care? Or do you interpret it like, homie, chill out? <laughs> right? People get them from me and they're like, his hands shake. He probably couldn't help it. <laughs> this raising of Lazarus is meant to be a crescendo sign in all of the Gospels. The one in which everybody is supposed to hang their hat. The one in which is supposed to draw everybody's attention to who Jesus is, was, is, and always will be. And not only that, furthermore, I suggest as we make our way through the passage, how he is. Without a doubt, again, most of us have already come believing that Jesus is Lord. Yes and amen. And this is what the sign is saying, that he is the one sent from heaven. He is the one that all of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament have spoken about. He is the one whom he himself says he is. And if you want to argue with it, all you got to look to is Lazarus's empty tomb. This was the argument from God, if you will, to humanity about who his son is, about the identity of the one sent from heaven to seek and save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is it. Like, it's not just some weird prophet in the midst of nowhere dying for so, no reason. This is God himself saying, I love the world so much, I'm going to send my son who will be the propitiation for their sins and rescue them out of darkness and free them, enliven them into his marvelous light. Yes? This is actually the one he's talking about. Now, we believe that. They didn't. They didn't. That's why John places it here. 
Because from here, and we'll see this in the next few months, because on April 9th, by the way, it's Resurrection Sunday, and we're going to celebrate that Jesus himself rose from the dead. And in the time in between, you will see that Jesus, from this moment, resolutely goes to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many. John is making sure that his readers understand that the one who claimed to be God in the flesh, who would give his life as a ransom for many, did so. The one who gave his life in their place on a cross for the forgiveness of their sins was God himself. And there can be no doubt why. Because nobody else rose somebody from the dead. So he raises Lazarus from the dead. But I suggest to you, as we make our way through the passage, we'll not only remember who he is, the Lord, but we'll see how he is, the Lord of. Look at John chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. It says this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Bethany is just a few miles from Jerusalem, just so you know. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, being Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard when he heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of, my, Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, I highly recommend immersing yourself, even as we read the word. Don't let it just be words from a stage and behind a pulpit. Let it be something that overwhelms you to the point of feeling emotional about it. Because we're talking about three human beings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Two sisters whose brother, Lazarus, was sick to the point that they believed he was going to die at any moment. So they do the only thing that they can figure out to do in the midst of an overwhelming and hopeless situation. They reach out to the one whom they believe can do something about it. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because they were aware that Jesus at another time healed a centurion servant from a distance. In one sense, you could actually see them. They're reaching out to Jesus because their brother is sick. Remember, Jesus is 90 miles away. And in their minds, they're like, he might not make it back in time. But from their perspective, yeah, but remember, we heard that one time that he did that one thing from that one far distance and everything worked out okay. Send for him. They could have believed it from that perspective. They could have also been hoping against hope that maybe he could fast track himself Remember, he's the Lord of time and space. I'm assuming if Jesus wanted, he could do this. And 90 miles means nothing to him. Are you with me? Did I say that we presuppositionally believe in the miraculous ability of God himself? So he could do that. He could go, hi. I don't know if he would have done it like that for sure. Right? He could have even hurt, healed from a distance without even saying a word. He could have just went, Right? That's what we believe. But look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, when he heard this, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. It's important for us to recognize that Jesus is the Lord of omniscience. The Lord of all-knowingness. The Lord who knows more than we. The Lord who knows everything better than we know anything. He's a Lord of omniscience. And as such, he is aware of and knows how to bring about the greater purposes and plans of God, even in and through our circumstances. Now, if you're Mary and Martha, see, we're amening it. 
because we're on this side of it. And we're here on a Sunday and we're happy to be here. But if you're Mary and Martha and you get word back that Jesus says, I love you too. You just hang tight because I got something bigger and better than just you going on. They wouldn't have liked that, right? But that's the reality of what he's revealing. He is the Lord of omniscience. He is aware of exactly what and how everything needs to happen according to the purposes and plans of God in such a way that he receives even more glory. And it's okay for him to think that. It's okay for him to believe that because he does so perfectly. And so he's the Lord of omniscience. He knows exactly what needs to happen. And what that means for us is this. Jesus knows us and our circumstances, and he also knows how to work out the Father's will for us through them. As such, we should wholeheartedly trust him. See, on the one hand, what the passage reveals, not just that Jesus is Lord, but he's the Lord who can be trusted. Why? Because he knows more about everything that we do about, than we do about anything. He knows what he's doing. Amen? But in the midst of that, he knows what he's doing, right? Because I know it's a Bible study, but if you're Mary and Martha, you're like, okay, this is not going according to plan. I thought you said you loved us, Lord. Are we not important enough? I know it's a long distance, but can't you just get here? You see what I mean? See, it's messy that way. And even though we amen the reality that, yeah, the Lord knows more about everything than we do about anything, even though we amen that, we also know that, man, it's messy sometimes to trust him. Because sometimes he seems to be about his business in ways that we don't necessarily agree with. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there in prayer going, Lord, I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever done that? You ever done, Lord, listen, I understand that you know more about everything than I know about anything. However, from my vast knowledge about the some things that I do know, I am sure that I'm not sure that I know that I like what you're doing. Because the clock is ticking and my brother is dying. Now that may not be our circumstances. But we may have circumstances that feel hopeless, hard, frustrating. We may be in the midst of circumstances and situations that are ridiculously uncomfortable. And all we want is out. And we want out now. But if we hang our hat on Jesus, the one who can raise the dead. He's also the one that knows what he's doing beyond anything that we can know. We have to trust him. I would encourage you, if there's anything standing in the way of, blocking you from, making it challenging to trust in Jesus, today's the day to hear his voice calling you out of that dark and deadly place and calling you to life again. See, mistrust is not living. Trust is really living even when it feels like dying. That's what it means to trust him. And he reveals in these first few verses that he's the Lord of omniscience. He's the Lord of all knowingness. And we can trust him because of it. He moves on in verse 5 and he says this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Are you guys ready for it? I love this. He's the Lord of loving relationships. Did you catch it? It says, verse 5, 
Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, he's the, he's the Lord of loving relationships. But did you see the challenge in it? Let me read verse 6 just again in case you missed it. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Come on. Are you kidding me? Are you guys aware that we have a four-year-old? Any of you ever had a four-year-old? At four, they can debate the finer things like love. Ezekiel, I really love you, and so we're not watching cartoons today. We have a rule on Sundays, just so you know, I'm going to give you a peek behind the curtain. We have a rule on Sunday. We have a habit. We have a tradition. We'll call it that. <laughs> we have a tradition on Sunday mornings that we don't walk, watch PJ Masks. We don't watch Paw Patrol. We don't watch Gabby's Dollhouse ever. We don't, <laughs> we don't do that. Sunday mornings are for veggie tales and Bible adventures. <laughs> it's Sunday. <laughs> and guess what? Ezekiel does not like it. I'm a pastor's kid, Dad. I get church all the time. <laughs> he doesn't say that, but that's what his look is. <laughs> Can I watch a show? Yeah, we're going to go veggie tales, veggie tales. He goes, no. And you can look at him and you can say, listen, I'm doing it this way because I love you. We are delaying PJ Masks till two days later because I love you. Do you see where this goes? Now, from your vantage point as full-grown, mature Christian adults, you would amen the fact that we love our kid. Come on, somebody. <laughs> There's a little light on the amen. Some of you are like, I don't know, I've seen you at the mall. Right? We love our kids. You would amen that, but easy. he don't get that. He thinks the delay is about hate, not love. But we all know that it's love and care, not hate and disregard. Jesus is the Lord of loving relationship. It should not be missed that the God of heaven and earth, we take this for granted, but the God of heaven and earth not only came down to earth, subjected himself, himself to the reality of what he created, think it through. Are you with are you, mm -hmm. Right? Subjected himself to the reality of what he created and then, owing it to no one, engaged Humanity in personal, intimate, genuine, authentic, and real relationship. Built on the reality of his love. Okay, so maybe that didn't move you. Let me try it a different way. Jesus loves you. This you know. For the Bible tells you so. Yes? Let me tell you what else the Bible says. You don't deserve it. And just in case you think I'm mean, and on my high horse called a pulpit, neither do I. And yet God engages humanity. Was there something special and perfect about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? No. They were humans just like us. And John chapter 11, verse 5, says that he loves them. 
How much does he love them in terms of personal, intimate, and genuine, real relationship? He loves them so much that out of his deep and continual care, loving kindness, kind uh, pointedness towards them, in the midst of all of that, he loves them enough to make sure that they learn everything that he needs them to learn, no matter what it costs. It's a tough one to amen, because we recognize, man, that could cost comfort. That could cost us sadness and hardship. Like, it's really hard. But don't forget that he was doing, this whole thing gets played out for the glory of God. And the ones that he loved had to learn about it. Yes? So, if he is the God of loving relationships, then we should embrace him. Not just trust him, but embrace him. The God of loving relationships comes down from heaven into earth and says, I love you this much. And all he wants from us is for us to walk up to him and say, I love you too. Are you with me? I love you too. I think we overcomplicate theology. I think sometimes we make it like, well, you gotta, and then you should, and then you can't, and then, you, and then before you know it, we've given you a list of 47 things that you're not supposed to do, including 113 words you're not supposed to use, knowing good and well that we used half of them yesterday. Are you with me? Those who play golf. Right? We overcomplicate it all the time. The God of heaven and earth is the Lord of loving relationships. He came down to he from heaven to earth, and he said, I love you. And all he desires is for us to embrace him, for us to walk up to him, bow down, and say, I love you too. That's it. Now, some of you might, but, but, the, but the, he'll take care of the rest. He's pretty good at leading and guiding. Just let him. We should embrace him as such. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with the Lord. I don't know if it's new, I don't know if it's old, I don't know if it's fresh, and I don't know if it's forgotten. But wherever it is, may today be a reminder that he loves you very much, and he'd love to give you a hug. How cool is that? Some of you might be thinking, now hold on, hold on. Do you mean to tell me that the God of heaven and earth wants to give me a hug? I actually can't think of a better way to communicate it. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. So embrace him and see what he does. But see, Jesus doesn't stop there. We all know what happens. So in verse 7, it says, after this, all the way to 16, it says, after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples, remember, he's 90 miles away. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Remember, the disciples, Jesus goes, all right, it's been two days, let's go. And the disciples are like, no, 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 do the distance thing again. We'll get word in a few days that Lazarus is fine because you went from a distance. They're trying to kill you, us, you, us, you, but us, you. 
You see what I mean? The disciples are terrified. So look at what happens. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In a sense, what Jesus is saying, forget about all of that. Now's the time. It's time for the world to see the light of the world. Now we go. So look at what happens. The disciples... <laughs> After saying these things, verse 11, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And this is where the disciples are like, no, 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 but, okay, wait, we're, uh, they're trying to kill us, you, us. Do we really have to go? Yeah, we got to go. Now's the time. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples are like, oh, well, that changes things. If he's just taking a nap, he'll wake up. Can't we just Wait. You see what I mean? It's very human. And so the disciples say, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Man, you guys remember that at the beginning I said that he's the Lord of omniscience. He's the Lord who knows everything and knows what he's doing. So then he says, now we're going to go. And I'm glad that he died because you're going to see something and learn something that you never would otherwise. So let's get going. So Thomas, verse 16, called the twins, said to his disciples, well, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, I knew that we would chuckle because most of us at this point, when we hear about Thomas, we think about what? We think he's doubting Thomas. But don't forget, he didn't get the nickname here. He got it later. They called him Doubting Thomas. The church called him Doubting Thomas. I don't think Jesus ever called him Doubting Thomas. I think Jesus called him like, hey, I'm glad you're devoted, Thomas. I'm glad by seeing the scars in my hands and in my feet, you're devoted, Thomas. But the church calls him Doubting Thomas, and so we read it back into this moment, and we think that Thomas is like, all right, then we're all going to die, right? <laughs> but, which, by the way, is a very real and human interaction with Jesus. It's a very real and human reaction to the reality of Jesus and his leading in our lives. Have you ever felt like, I don't understand? <laughs> you ever done that? Okay. But Thomas, could it be that there's another way of listening to this? That Thomas is actually exercising a great amount of faith in believing in the reality of Jesus. And he says, okay then, we're going to go with you. And no matter where you go, we'll go. And if that costs us our life, it was worth it. Could it be that that's what Thomas was saying? Either way, what we're supposed to see, I think one of the things that we could see in these verses is this. That Jesus is the Lord of steadfast love and he is unfazed by any kind of opposition the world throws at him. See, the disciples are like, no, 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 we can't go to Jerusalem. They want to kill you, us, right? And Jesus says, no, now's the time. We go. I think there's great hope in that. The reality that he is the Lord of steadfast love, that he will not be distracted by any kind of threat, resistance, or hostility from anyone or anything, and we should definitely count on him to come through in any moment. If there was a moment where Jesus should have exercised or could have exercised his ability to heal from a distance, maybe this is it, but he didn't do it. Because he is the Lord of steadfast love and nothing will stand in his way 
when it comes to loving humanity in such a way that they learn to appreciate everything about him. He's the Lord of steadfast love. So we should count on him in the darkest moment, in the most overwhelming circumstances, in the toughest times, in the most frustrating days of our lives. We should always count on Jesus in some way at some time. And it doesn't matter if it's right now or two days later. In some way at some time, he's going to come through. Why? Because that's what he always does. Now, let me suggest, he's not necessarily going to come through every single time the way we think he's going to come through. He's going to come through the way he sees it needs to be gone through. So we just hold on to that. We count on him. Well, he goes on in verse 17. we got to keep going. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And so many Jews had come from Martha and Mary to console him concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died but even I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha has a theological misunderstanding in the moment. It's fair. Martha says, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I, Jesus said to her, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So he makes his way with his disciples to Bethany, and he's met first by Martha. Martha, who's thinking intellectually, theologically. She's trying to make sense of it. Her heart, you got to assume, is too hurt by everything that she had gone through over the last few days. She lost her brother. He was buried. He was dead. He was in the tomb. The rock was over the covering of the tomb, and it was sealed. He was dead. And she is mourning and in grief at the loss. And so, therefore, her heart is probably covered with protection. She just can't go there emotionally, so she's just thinking theologically. And she says to Jesus, if you would have been here, maybe something could have been done because I believe this is who you are. And Jesus says, no, 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 he'll rise again. And she goes, I know, he'll rise again. <laughs> I know, I've read my Bible. He'll rise again at the resurrection at the end of all days. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? If you believe this, guess what's going to happen? Jesus knew the whole time what was going to happen. Note this, Martha needed some theology to get to this place of belief. She needed a little Bible study from Jesus in order to get to a place where she could believe beyond her, the, her theological presupposition. That, that God, like the dead don't raise until the end of time. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm here and I'm going to do something else. Let me explain to you how this is going to work. See, I think this, that Jesus is the Lord of compassion. That means this. He is the Lord of compassion and is able to care for people exactly where they're at and how they need to be cared for. Martha needed a Bible study. Mary, on the other hand, she needed something else. So it says that when he, verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling you. Did you notice that Mar Martha called him the teacher? He had just taught her a thing or two about resurrection life. And in her mind, in her life, that's kind of how she related to Jesus. 
So Jesus, with compassion, relates to her in that same way. He's the Lord of compassion. And his care for each individual is individualized. Yes? Mary, on the other hand, was different. Mary was all heart. Mary was kind of all heart and soul. Look at what happens. And when she heard it, she rose. Mary rose quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met them. And when the Jews who were there with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. You see that? Mary's just overwhelmed with emotion. You get the sense she can't even talk, let alone engage a Bible study. She's just distraught, weeping and crying and emotional. So... It says in verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's just an emotional outburst, outpouring. It's an overflowing from a grief-stricken and distraught heart. It could have been different. Is she, was, was she thinking through the theology that God is a holy God and you shouldn't interact with him that way? Nope. Was she worried about being so honest that God might actually strike her down where she stands for being irreverent? Nope. You know what she was doing? She was opening her mouth and letting her heart pour out. And so the Lord sat her down and gave her a good little Bible study. No, that's not what happens. I couldn't bend any further. I was going to go all the way, but I couldn't. So here's what happens. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to her, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Look at verse 35. Jesus wept. Every Christian school kid's favorite Bible verse to memorize. Jesus wept. But when we memorize it, do we remember the background in which it comes across? That he wept in response to a woman that he dearly loved who was weeping over the loss of a loved one. Jesus is a Lord of compassion. And he knows exactly what we need when we need it and where we need it. He knows exactly when we need a theological lesson and a Bible study and he's willing to give it lovingly. And he also knows exactly when we need a shoulder to cry on and somebody to cry with. And he willingly goes there. He's the Lord of compassion, and I suggest to you that we would do well to engage him as such, to believe and trust that his care for us is out of a heart that wants to help us. And no matter what way it comes, we got to believe he knows what we need. As we continue on, verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Now I know the rest of the story and we can't wait to get to the rest of the verses where he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes out and he's wrapped in like a mummy. Walking like a penguin. I know that. But we can't miss verse 38. I think verse 38 is one of the best verses for us to consider as it relates to our own Christianity. Because in verse 38, Jesus reveals himself as the Lord of justice who is enraged over sin's effect on humanity. Look at this. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone 
play against it. The term deeply moved again from the original Greek language actually in this instance means he was enraged. He was upset and he was furious. He was not enraged, upset, and furious at people. He was enraged, upset, and furious over the reality of sin and its effects on his creation because this is not the way he intended things to be. It was never intended that the end of humanity would be a rock-covered grave filled with hopelessness of no more tomorrow. And so he's enraged, not at Lazarus, not at Mary, not at Martha, not at you, and not at me. But he is enraged and upset and frustrated and angry over the reality of sin in the world. He is the Lord of justice. He is passionate about, about the, effect that, the effect that sin has on our society. And I suggest we should emulate him and maintain a passionate perspective about the problems within our world. Now, before we say amen, thank you, Chris, let me caution you. Throughout history, the church has run this thing on their own without the wisdom of God. Passion, having a passionate perspective about the wrongs in the world, it, I, I do not mean that we should go around and be a jerk in Jesus' name about everything that we think is bad in the world and yell at people and scream out, why don't you know better and you should and God didn't and rah! Are you with me? I'm gonna need some water. Not right now, later. See, here's the interesting thing. When, when we use the term Jesus was passionate, his justice brought about a passion within him about sinful effects on humanity. We have to understand the term passion in the perfect tense, in the sense that it was related to Jesus. It means this. He looked out and he saw the devastating effects of sin, which was death. Lazarus had died, he was in a tomb, it was sealed, and he could not come out on his own. He was dead. His relatives and his loved ones and his friends were mourning. They were in grief over the whole reality of it. Jesus sees the whole thing, and he is enraged at the reality of sin because this was not his plan, and this is what wasn't the way it was supposed to work out. And so he has a passionate perspective about that. It doesn't mean to just get excited about it. Are you with me? The, the idea about passion as it's related to Jesus, it means that you want to make something better and you're willing to sacrifice anything and everything in order to bring it about. This is the passion of Jesus. Because Jesus looks and he's enraged over the effects that sin has had on humanity and you know that within a week he's going to go do something about it. He's going to give his life as a ransom for many on the cross. So when I say that we should emulate his passion about the problems of the world, it doesn't mean that we just look around and point fingers and get upset. What it means is that we should look around and we see things that are upsetting and we have a sense that is willing to make sacrifices to bring about something better for the people that are enslaved to it all. 
make sacrifices. It may cost us some time. It may cost us some money. It may cost us some pride. It may cost us some whatever it is. You fill in the blank. But maintaining a passionate perspective about the problems in the world means that just like Jesus, we're willing to step into it and try to do something about it for the glory of God according to his leading and his plans and his purpose. It is not okay for any Christian anywhere, this is my opinion, you can argue with me later, it's not okay for any Christian anywhere to just be a jerk in Jesus' name and point fingers at all the problems in the world and not be willing to do anything about it. It's not okay. And the reason why I believe that it's not okay is because that's not what we see in Jesus. Amen? Well, finally, and you guys are thinking to yourselves, it's about time. Finally. Jesus reveals himself to be the Lord of life who is victorious over the last and most formidable, formidable, I keep saying formidable, it's formidable. This is why I should write things down. The last and most formidable enemy that humanity has, and that is death. In verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? <laughs> I love it. Jesus looks at Martha and says, remember the Bible study. <laughs> so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. <laughs> Which, by the way, we see that as like this authoritative God in control. <laughs> it's more of a God in response, just so you know. Lazarus comes out of the grave. Everybody's like, paralyzed by the reality of the miracle that they're witnessing. And Jesus has to say to him, go help him. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? It's this unbelievable miracle. I'm going to ask you to stand for a moment if you don't mind. While you guys are standing, the worship team is going to come up. You might be thinking, we're almost done. And you would be right. But before we get done, there are some things to do. Number one, we're going to sing another song together. Why? Because I think our spirits need to celebrate the reality of a God who can raise the dead. I think our spirits need to celebrate the reality of a God who calls our name and asks us to run into life. Does that make sense? And amen. So here's the thing. It is not lost on me that everybody in here is alive. Like, I, I get it. Like, we're alive. That's fine. But that doesn't mean, as believers, that we're not dealing with dead things within our life. It doesn't mean that we're not struggling with things that are supposed to be dead and we're giving them too much life in our life. And maybe they're trust issues. Maybe they're belief issues. Maybe they're perspective issues. Maybe they're prayer issues. Maybe they're, I don't think that he loves me issues. Whatever those issues are that are keeping us away from the Lord, they're killing us slowly. And Jesus today, without a doubt, wants to not only reveal himself, as the Lord of life who is victorious over enemies in our lives that seek to bring about death. He wants us to realize that and not just realize it and think to ourselves on the way out, that was pretty good. I like the music and the jokes were okay. That's not, that's not at all what he wants. You know what he actually wants? 
He wants us to go, oh, Lord, I've been distracted from who you really are. And I believe once again that you're the Lord of life. Let me hear your name. Let me hear you call my name out of this darkness and this death, that struggle and that death, that frustration and that death, that whatever it is, back into life again. Because don't you know he came to give us life and life abundantly. Thank you for listening. For more information about Rogue Valley Christian Church, please visit our website at www.rvchristian.com.